0: The Desire of Ages, Chapter 16, In His Temple After this he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother, and his brethren, and his disciples. And they continued there not many days. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In this journey Jesus joined one of the large companies that were making their way to the capital. He had not yet publicly announced his mission and he mingled unnoticed with the throng. Upon these occasions, the coming of the Messiah, to which such prominence had been given by the ministry of John, was often the theme of conversation. The hope of national greatness was dwelt upon with kindling enthusiasm. Jesus knew that this hope was to be disappointed, for it was founded on a misrepresentation of the scriptures. With deep earnestness, He explained the prophecies and tried to arouse the people to a closer study of God's word. The Jewish leaders had instructed the people that at Jerusalem they were to be taught to worship God. Here, during the Passover week, large numbers assembled, coming from all parts of Palestine and even from distant lands. The temple courts were filled with a promiscuous throng. Many were unable to bring with them the sacrifices that were to be offered up as typifying the one great sacrifice. For the convenience of these, animals were bought and sold in the outer court of the temple. Here, all classes of people assembled to purchase their offerings. Here all foreign money was exchanged for the coin of the sanctuary. Every Jew was required to pay yearly a half shekel as a ransom for his soul, and the money thus collected was used for the support of the temple. Besides this, large sums were brought as free will offerings to be deposited into the temple treasury, and it was required that all foreign coin should be changed for a coin called the temple shekel, which was accepted for the service of the sanctuary. The money changing gave opportunity for fraud and extortion, and it had grown into a disgraceful traffic, which was a source of revenue to the priests. The dealers demanded exorbitant prices for the animals sold, and they shared their profits with the priests and rulers, who thus enriched themselves at the expense of the people. The worshippers had been taught to believe that if they did not offer sacrifice, the blessing of God would not rest on their children or their lands. Thus a high price for the animals could be secured, for after coming so far, the people would not return to their homes without performing the act of devotion for which they had come. A great number of sacrifices were offered at the time of the Passover, and the sales of the temple were very large. The consequent confusion indicated a noisy cattle market rather than the sacred temple of God. There could be heard sharp bargaining, the lowing of cattle, the bleating of sheep, the cooing of doves, mingled with the chinking of coin and angry disputation. So great was the confusion that the worshippers were disturbed, and the words addressed to the Most High were drowned in the uproar that invaded the temple. The Jews were exceedingly proud of their piety. They rejoiced over their temple and regarded a word spoken in its disfavour as blasphemy. They were very rigorous in the performance of ceremonies connected with it, but the love of money had overruled their scruples. They were scarcely aware how far they had wandered from the original purpose of the service instituted by God himself. When the Lord descended upon Mount Sinai, the place was consecrated by his presence. Moses was commanded to put bounds about the mountain to sanctify it, and the word of the Lord was heard in warning, Take heed to yourselves, that ye go not up into the mount, or touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the mount shall be surely put to death. Thou shall not an hand touch it, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether it be beast or man, it shall not live. Thus was taught the lesson that wherever God manifests his presence, the place is holy. The precincts of God's temple should have been regarded as sacred, but in the strife for gain all this was lost sight of. The priests and rulers were called to be the representatives of God to the nation. They should have corrected the abuses of the temple court. They should have given to the people an example of integrity and compassion. Instead of studying their own profit, they should have considered the situation and needs of the worshippers and should have been ready to assist those who were not able to buy the required sacrifices. But this they did not do. Avarice had hardened their hearts. There came to this feast those who were suffering, those who were in want and distress. The blind, the lame, the deaf were there. Some were brought on beds. Many came who were too poor to purchase the humblest offering for the Lord, too poor even to buy food with which to satisfy their own hunger. These were greatly distressed by the statements of the priests. The priests boasted of their piety. They claimed to be the guardians of the people, but they were without sympathy or compassion. The poor, the sick, the dying made their vain plea for favor. Their suffering awakened no pity in the hearts of the priests. As Jesus came into the temple, he took in the whole scene. He saw the unfair transactions. He saw the distress of the poor who thought that without shedding of blood, there would be no forgiveness for their sins. He saw the outer court of his temple converted into a place of unholy traffic. The sacred enclosure had become one vast exchange. Christ saw that something must be done. Numerous ceremonies were enjoined upon the people without the proper instruction as to their import. The worshippers offered their sacrifices without understanding that they were typical of the only perfect sacrifice. And among them, unrecognized and unhonored, stood the one symbolized by all their service. He had given directions in regard to the offerings. He understood their symbolical value, and he saw that they were now perverted and misunderstood. Spiritual worship was fast disappearing. No link bound the priests and rulers to their God. Christ's work was to establish an altogether different worship. With searching glance, Christ takes in the scene before him as he stands upon the steps of the temple court. With prophetic eye, he looks into futurity and sees not only years, but centuries and ages. He sees how priests and rulers will turn the needy from their right and forbid that the gospel shall be preached to the poor. He sees how the love of God will be concealed from sinners and men will make merchandise of his grace. As he beholds the scene, indignation, authority and power are expressed in his countenance. The attention of the people is attracted to him. The eyes of those engaged in their unholy traffic are riveted upon his face. They cannot withdraw their gaze. They feel that this man reads their inmost thoughts and discovers their hidden motives. Some attempt to conceal their faces as if their evil deeds were written upon their countenances to be scanned by those searching eyes. The confusion is hushed. The sound of traffic and bargaining has ceased. The silence becomes painful. A sense of awe overpowers the assembly. It is as if they were arranged before the tribunal of God to answer for their deeds. Looking upon Christ, they behold divinity flash through the garb of humanity The majesty of heaven stands as the judge will stand at the last day, not now encircled with the glory that will then attend him, but with the same power to read the soul. His eye sweeps over the multitude, taking in every individual. His form seems to rise above them in commanding dignity, and a divine light illuminates his countenance. He speaks and his clear ringing voice, the same that upon Mount Sinai proclaimed the law that priests and rulers are now transgressing, is heard echoing through the arches of the temple. Take these things hence, make not my father's house an house of merchandise. Slowly descending the steps, and raising the scourge of cords gathered up on entering the enclosure, he bids the bargaining company depart from the precincts of the temple. With a zeal and severity he has never before manifested, he overthrows the tables of the money changers. The coin falls, ringing sharply upon the marble pavement. None presume to question his authority. None dare stop to gather up their ill-gotten gain. Jesus does not smite them with the whip of cords, but in his hand that simple scourge seems terrible as a flaming sword. Officers of the temple, speculating priests, brokers and cattle traders with their sheep and oxen rush from the place with the one thought of escaping from the condemnation of his presence. A panic sweeps over the multitude who feel the overshadowing of his divinity. Cries of terror escape from hundreds of blanched lips. Even the disciples tremble. They are awestruck by the words and manner of Jesus so unlike his usual demeanour. They remember that it is written of him, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Soon the tumultuous throng with their merchandise are far removed from the temple of the Lord. The courts are free from the unholy traffic and a deep silence and solemnity settles upon the scene of confusion. The presence of the Lord, that of old sanctified the mount, has now made sacred the temple reared in his honor. In the cleansing of the temple, Jesus was announcing his mission as the Messiah and entering upon his work. That temple, erected for the abode of the divine presence, was designed to be an object lesson for Israel and for the world. From eternal ages it was God's purpose that every created being, from the bright and holy seraph to man, should be a temple for the indwelling of the Creator. Because of sin, humanity ceased to be a temple for God, darkened and defiled by evil, The heart of man no longer revealed the glory of the Divine One. But by the incarnation of the Son of God, the purpose of heaven is fulfilled. God dwells in humanity, and through saving grace, the heart of man becomes again His temple. God designed that the temple at Jerusalem should be a continual witness to the high destiny open to every soul. But the Jews had not understood the significance of the building they regarded with so much pride. They did not yield themselves as holy temples for the divine spirit. The courts of the temple at Jerusalem, filled with the tumult of unholy traffic, represented all too truly the temple of the heart, defiled by the presence of sensual passion and unholy thoughts. In cleansing the temple from the world's buyers and sellers, Jesus announced his mission to cleanse the heart from the defilement of sin, from the earthly desires, the selfish lusts, the evil habits that corrupt the soul. The Lord, whom ye seek, shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. No man can of himself cast out the evil throng that have taken possession of the heart. Only Christ can cleanse the soul temple. But he will not force an entrance. He comes not into the heart as to the temple of old, but he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him. He will come, not for one day merely, for he says, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and they shall be my people. He will subdue our iniquities, and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. His presence will cleanse and sanctify the soul so that it may be a holy temple unto the Lord, inhabitation of God through the Spirit. Overpowered with terror, the priests and rulers had fled from the temple court and from the searching glance that read their hearts. In their flight, they met others on their way to the temple and bade them turn back, telling them what they had seen and heard. Christ looked upon the fleeing men with yearning Pity for their fear and their ignorance of what constituted true worship. In this scene he saw symbolized the dispersion of the whole Jewish nation for their wickedness and impenitence. And why did the priests flee from the temple? Why did they not stand their ground? He who commanded them to go was a carpenter's son, a poor Galilean without earthly rank or power. Why did they not resist him? Why did they leave the gain so ill acquired and flee at the command of one whose outward appearance was so humble? Christ spoke with the authority of a king. At the word of command, they realized, as they had never realized before, their true position as hypocrites and robbers. When divinity flashed through humanity, not only did they see indignation on Christ's countenance, they realized the import of his words. They felt as if before the throne of the eternal judge, with their sentence passed on them for time and for eternity. For a time, they were convinced that Christ was a prophet, and many believed him to be the Messiah. The Holy Spirit flashed into their minds the utterances of the prophets concerning Christ. Would they yield to this conviction? Repent, they would not. They knew that Christ's sympathy for the poor had been aroused. They knew that they had been guilty of extortion in their dealings with the people. Because Christ discerned their thoughts, they hated him. His public rebuke was humiliating to their pride, and they were jealous of his growing influence with the people. They determined to challenge him as to the power by which he had driven them forth, and who gave him this power? Slowly and thoughtfully, but with hate in their hearts, they returned to the temple. But what a change had taken place during their absence! When they fled, the poor remained behind, and these were now looking to Jesus, whose countenance expressed his love and sympathy. With tears in his eyes, he said to the trembling ones around him, Fear not, I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. For this cause came I into the world. The people pressed into Christ's presence with urgent, pitiful appeals. Master, bless me! His ear heard every cry. With pity exceeding that of a tender mother, he bent over the suffering little ones. All received attention. Everyone was healed of whatever disease he had. The dumb opened their lips in praise. The blind beheld the face of their restorer. The hearts of the sufferers were made glad. As the priests and temple officials witnessed this great work, what a revelation to them were the sounds that fell on their ears. The people were relating the story of the pain they had suffered, of their disappointed hopes, of painful days and sleepless nights, when the last spark of hope seemed to be dead. Christ had healed them. The burden was so heavy, one said, but I have found a helper He is the Christ of God, and I will devote my life to his service. Parents said to their children, He has saved your life. Lift up your voice and praise him. (laughs) The voices of children and youth, fathers and mothers, friends and spectators, blended in thanksgiving and praise. Hope and gladness filled their hearts. Peace came to their minds. They were restored, Soul. And body, and they returned home, proclaiming everywhere the matchless love of Jesus. At the crucifixion of Christ, those who had thus been healed did not join with the rabble throng in crying, Crucify him, crucify him. Their sympathies were with Jesus, for they had felt his great sympathy and wonderful power. They knew him to be their Saviour for he had given them health of body and soul. They listened to the preaching of the apostles, and the entrance of God's word into their hearts gave them understanding. They became agents of God's mercy and instruments of his salvation. The crowd that had fled from the temple court after a time slowly drifted back. They had partially recovered from the panic that had seized them, but their faces expressed irresolution and timidity. They looked with amazement on the works of Jesus and were convinced that in Him the prophecies concerning the Messiah were fulfilled. The sin of the desecration of the temple rested, in a great degree, upon the priests. It was by their arrangement that the court had been turned into a marketplace. The people were comparatively innocent. They were impressed by the divine authority of Jesus, but with them the influence of the priests and rulers was paramount. They regarded Christ's mission as an innovation and questioned his right to interfere with what was permitted by the authorities of the temple. They were offended because the traffic had been interrupted and they stifled the convictions of the Holy Spirit. Above all others, the priests and rulers should have seen in Jesus the anointed of the Lord, for in their hands were the sacred scrolls that described his mission, and they knew that the cleansing of the temple was a manifestation of more than human power. Much as they hated Jesus, they could not free themselves from the thought that he might be a prophet sent by God to restore the sanctity of the temple. With a deference born of this fear, they went to him with the inquiry, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus had shown them a sign. In flashing light into their hearts and in doing before them the works which the Messiah was to do, He had given convincing evidence of his character. Now, when they asked for a sign, he answered them by a parable, showing that he read their malice and saw to what lengths it would lead them. Destroy this temple, he said, and in three days I will raise it up. In these words, his meaning was twofold. He referred not only to the destruction of the Jewish temple and worship, but to his own death the destruction of the temple of his body. This the Jews were already plotting. As the priests and rulers returned to the temple, they had proposed to kill Jesus and thus rid themselves of the troubler. Yet when he set before them their purpose, they did not understand him. They took his words as applying only to the temple at Jerusalem and with indignation exclaimed, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? Now they felt that Jesus had justified their unbelief, and they were confirmed in their rejection of him. Christ did not design that his words should be understood by the unbelieving Jews, nor even by his disciples at this time. He knew that they would be misconstrued by his enemies and would be turned against him. At his trial they would be brought as an accusation and on Calvary they would be flung at him as a taunt. But to explain them now would give his disciples a knowledge of his sufferings and bring upon them sorrow, which as yet they were not able to bear. And an explanation would prematurely disclose to the Jews the result of their prejudice and unbelief. Already they had entered upon a path which they would steadily pursue, until he should be led as a lamb to the slaughter. It was for the sake of those that should believe on him that these words of Christ were spoken. He knew that they would be repeated. Being spoken at the Passover, they would come to the ears of thousands and be carried to all parts of the world. After he had risen from the dead, their meaning would be made plain. To many they would be conclusive evidence of his divinity. Because of their spiritual darkness, even the disciples of Jesus often failed of comprehending his lessons. But many of these lessons were made plain to them by subsequent events. When he walked no more with them, his words were a stay to their hearts. As referring to the temple at Jerusalem, the Savior's words, "Destroy this temple, and in 3 days I will raise it up," had a deeper meaning than the hearers perceived. Christ was the foundation and life of the temple. Its services were typical of the sacrifice of the Son of God. The priesthood was established to represent the mediatorial character and work of Christ. The entire plan of sacrificial worship was a foreshadowing of the Savior's death to redeem the world. There would be no efficacy in these offerings when the great event toward which they had pointed for ages was consummated. Since the whole ritual economy was symbolic of Christ, it had no value apart from him. When the Jews sealed their rejection of Christ by delivering him to death, they rejected all that gave significance to the temple and its services. Its sacredness had departed it was doomed to destruction. From that day, sacrificial offerings and the service connected with them were meaningless. Like the offering of Cain, they did not express faith in the Saviour. In putting Christ to death, the Jews virtually destroyed their temple. When Christ was crucified, the inner veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom, signifying that the great final sacrifice had been made and that the system of sacrificial offerings was forever at an end. In three days I will raise it up. In the Saviour's death, the powers of darkness seemed to prevail and they exalted in their victory. But from the rent sepulcher of Joseph, Jesus came forth a conqueror. Having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them. By virtue of his death and resurrection, he became the minister of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. Men reared the Jewish tabernacle, men builded the Jewish temple, but the sanctuary above, of which the earthly was a type, was built by no human architect. Behold the man whose name is The Branch. He shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne. The sacrificial service that had pointed to Christ passed away, but the eyes of men were turned to the true sacrifice for the sins of the world. The earthly priesthood ceased, but we look to Jesus, the minister of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. The way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, but Christ, being come as an high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. By his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Though the ministration was to be removed from the earthly to the heavenly temple, though the Sanctuary and our Great High Priest would be invisible to human sight. Yet the disciples were to suffer no loss thereby. They would realize no break in their communion and no diminution of power because of the Savior's absence. While Jesus ministers in the Sanctuary above, he is still, by his Spirit, the minister of the Church on earth. He is withdrawn from the eye of sense, but his parting promise is fulfilled. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. While he delegates his power to inferior ministers, his energizing presence is still with his church. Seeing then that we have a great high priest, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need.